welcome to System Change Made Simple. You've probably heard of the slogan, System Change, Not Climate Change. So this series of podcasts is designed to explain and explore this idea. I'm Terry Lay, I'm a sociologist. So get yourself a hot drink and get comfortable. And I hope you enjoy this series of podcasts. This particular podcast that I'm doing right now is on Marx's theory of class society. And it's part of a set of podcasts. It's the number five in a set of podcasts on social class as a global cross-cultural historical phenomenon and so on. So this podcast is on Marx's theory of class. And in the next podcast, I'll deconstruct that theory or at least look at it in terms of the way I look at things. This is a really general introduction to Marx's theory of class. Marx's theory of class is scattered in various writings, so there's no place where he actually explains it all in detail, consequentially, as it were. So, you know, Capital, Volume 1, in terms of what might be easy to read, um, Wage, Labour and Capital is really good. Also, the Communist Manifesto. Other writings that are relevant, the German ideology particularly relevant. Another set of writings which is often called the pre-capitalist economic formations or the Grundrisse or whatever. And then his early writings, the Paris manuscripts or the early writings as they're sometimes called. These kind of writings by Marx on class are assembled as it were by socialists. So a good person to read and I'll also refer to him is Ernest Mandel, a Belgian Trotskyist, wrote in the 60s, 70s and so on. I mean Gordon Child as an anthropologist or archaeologist, whatever. You know, so there are various people who, who have interpreted Marx's theory of class in pretty much the way I'm about to do. Okay, so class in Marx's theory is a transfer of a material surplus product. This surplus product is produced by the subordinate class, like that could be peasants or the working class or the slaves, whatever. And it's appropriated, you know, like taken over, owned, come to be owned by the ruling class, which could be, you know, landlords, the king, uh, you know, a noble elite or, or the capitalist class or whatever. The ruling classes own the means of production. So what are the means of production? They're the means by which material things are produced or things are produced that are necessary to people. So, you know, obviously in ancient societies, things like land is part of the means of production. Also forests and mines for tin, things like that are necessary to produce goods and services. In, in modern capitalist society, it's factories, but also probably banks and God knows what anyway. The ownership of the means of production, the control of the means of production gives the ruling class various ways of exerting leverage over the subordinate class. In other words, you don't get access to food and housing and your material necessities and your life unless you produce goods and services. The ruling class controls the means of producing these things. I mean, that's very variable in a way because like, it doesn't mean ownership in a sort of narrow legal sense, which only exists in capitalism anyway, but it means ownership is the sense of control. So in like in an ancient slave society, slaves themselves are owned, but in order to get access to food and so on, they have to do the work that their owner requires them to do. And then some of what they produce goes to the owner and some of what they produce like food, etc. they eat themselves. 
Marx refers to the hours worked to produce what the worker or person gets for their own use as necessary labour, in other words, necessary to create their subsistence. And the hours worked to produce what the ruling class appropriates, he refers to as surplus labour. So the stuff that surplus labour produces, he calls a surplus product. So, okay, so let's look at it in, in terms of a society like the slave societies of the Caribbean. We're talking here about the early colonial period when slaves were brought over from Africa to work on sugar plantations and salt mines in the Caribbean. Okay, so say the family lives on, the, on a little plot of On the weekends, they work in their own gardens to produce the food from that. That's necessary labour. And then in the other part of the week, you know, like three or four days a week or whatever it might be, five days a week, they work on the slave owner's land to produce either food. For example, it might be plantations to produce sugar. Or, or in, in the case of one Caribbean island that I visited, salt. You know, like, okay, so that's the surplus product, which is going to and is appropriated by the, the ruling class. So now I'm going to read a few quotes from Marx just to give you a flavour of what he says when he's writing about this stuff, just to explain this theory further. So he says here, capital has not invented surplus labour. Wherever a part of society possesses a monopoly of the means of production, the labourer, free or not free, must add to the working time necessary for his own maintenance and extra working time in order to produce the means of subsistence for the owners of the means of production. Whether this proprietor be the Athenian nobleman, the Etruscan theocrat, the civis Romanus, okay, meaning the Roman citizen, the elite in Rome, the Norman baron in medieval times, the American slave owner, the Wallachian boyard, well, Wallachia is a part of Romania and so on, the boyards like the nobility of the area, the modern landlord or capitalist. So free or not free. Okay, so what does he mean by that? Okay, so peasants and slaves were in a sense not free. Peasants not free to go somewhere else to another landlord. They have to stick with the landlord. They've been assigned, as it were. And the same is true of the slave. Obviously, they're not free. Whereas the, the modern labourer of, of capitalist societies is free. They can, they can offer their labour power on the market and move from one capitalist to another. This is like an, an invention, a new thing in class societies compared to other older class societies. Okay, I'll move on. And now this is what do class societies have in common? I've got a few quotes on this. And so he says, three days surplus labour in the week remain three days that yield no equivalent to the labourer himself, whether it be called corvée or wage labour. Corvées are called a compulsory work done for the landlord uh, in certain societies, and Marx is talking about that there, and he's saying that the labourer gets nothing out of this, that the landlord has complete control over it, and wage labour... It's the same. I'll come back to that, how he explains how wage labour also involves producing a surplus product that the worker doesn't get. And what class societies have in common again? This life activity sells to another person in order to secure the necessary means to enable subsistence, to enable him to exist. So that's because, like, he's talking about a capitalist society there and he's saying, okay, so you... you the reason why you've got to work is you've got to work to get money. Why have you got to get money? Because you don't own the means of production. You've got no way of supplying yourself with the goods and services you need to live. So what do you have to do? You have to put your labour power on the market and sell it in order, to, in order to get money, in order to eat and so on. And he would apply that to any society. So like I said, you know, in a slave society, 
You don't get access to food unless you do what the, the owner tells you. In a peasant society, you know, they'll send, send in knights and armour to ensure that you provide a certain amount of tribute to the Lord so you don't get access to anything. You'll be killed by the knights in armour if you don't bathe properly. Okay, so capitalism is a class society. So I'm going to read out this. This is like somewhat complex, but not that. I'll explain it. The portion of the working day then during which reproduction takes place, I call necessary labour time. And the labour expended during that time, I call necessary labour. During the second period of the labour process, the workman labours, but he creates no value for himself. He creates surplus value, which for the capitalist has all the charms of a creation out of nothing. Okay, so what he means by that is like, okay, so let's say it's an eight hour day, right? First four hours, you're working and you're producing monetary value, right? Marx says that in this time, <clears throat> the labour that you're doing is necessary in the sense of necessary for your reproduction as a labourer. Right? They buy things on the market and then, you know, eat food and live in houses and so on, right? That's reproduction. You're producing monetary value in that time and that's the monetary value you get paid in your wage, right? There it is, four hours four hours of work you've produced for the capitalist, all this monetary value, which happens to be the same as your wage, right? That's the first four hours, necessary labour. Right, what's the next four hours? Okay, so the next four hours you're still working and you're still producing monetary value for the capitalist, but you don't get paid any of that money, the capitalist gets it all, right? So that's the surplus labour. How much does that count as money? That's called surplus value. So notice how Marx makes this change then. He uses the term surplus product to refer to things like tribute, where the peasant gives a certain number of bags of wheat to the landlord. Whatever, that's tribute, right? That's a surplus product. And now he uses the term surplus value to apply to capitalist societies. In other words, what he's saying is these kinds of class societies operate in the same way, but in a sense in capitalist society, this is mystified. Like, it's not that apparent, you know, like you, you go to work and it's fair day's work for a fair day's pay. You, you offer your labour power and you get paid back what the labour power must be worth. But actually, he says it's worth a lot more than you get. It's worth a lot more in money. For, he gives us an example, a farmer, like a capitalist farmer, in other words, who employs a day labourer for five silver groschen and makes 10 silver groschen. So the cost the capitalist farmer, he's paying out five groschen for the day's work. But the money that he's making when he sells, like the wheat or whatever it is, is 10 silver groschen. So he's making an extra five silver groschen of money. That's surplus value. Now, this extra money not only produces the wealth of the capitalist, like as income, you know, as trips to Sweden or whatever, you know, da da da, like all that stuff, you know, holidays in Costa Rica or whatever. No. What it also does is it increases the capital of the capitalist owner. Okay, so he can put some of that money back. So Marx writes, the worker not only replaces what he consumes, meaning he not only makes as much money as he takes away in his wage, but gives to the accumulated labour a greater value than it previously possessed. So, okay, 
So the accumulated labour is like the means of production, you know, like machinery and so on. He's giving it that more value, but also in the sense of the products, you know, like he's producing cars and so on and so on. So at the beginning of the day, all of these bits and pieces and so on had a certain amount of monetary value. At the end of the day, it's a car. It's got more monetary value. Da, da, da. There you go. So note the shift, I've said this already, but I'm going to repeat it, the shift in terminology between pre-capitalist class societies and capitalism. Surplus product is the term used for any class society, including capitalist societies by implication, and I don't know whether he actually says that, but surplus value is only used to refer to capitalism where it's got a monetary. Now what I'm going to do is talk about Mandel. Okay, Man Man Mandel creates a synthesis of Marxist writings. He's a Trotskyist writer, right? He has an explanation of the origins of social class, which I'm going to talk about. But basically, it's quite consistent with Marx's writings, like in the German ideology, I'm thinking, for a start, also in pre-capitalist economic formations and so on, and in other places. So, all right, so here we go. And I, I've got this divided into A, B, and C. A, where one person can only produce enough for their own subsistence, there can be no social division into classes. All right, that makes a certain amount of sense. Okay, so we have a, a level of technology and product, productive capacity. We can only, we work hard all day, no, 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 no. and we get a certain amount of things from that, a certain amount of, and so on, and we can't produce any more. I mean, God, we've worked all day and we're still only producing enough for ourselves to eat. That's, that's the hypothesis, right? In other earlier podcasts on the topic of class, I've said why I think this theory doesn't actually work very well. But anyway, in terms of Marx's writing, he refers to this as primitive communism or tribal societies or something like that. And he's aware of the anthropology being conducted in the 19th century. And this makes this concept quite believable, you know, like that these societies were communal, that they uh, shared goods in common, and clearly, well, what Marx thought was that these societies were simple societies because they couldn't produce any more. Like one person couldn't produce any more than they could actually eat themselves and build their own dwellings and so on. And in the terms that we would now use, we probably talk about these as indigenous societies or classless societies, as I had in previous talks. B, the second point, an increase in productivity beyond this low point sets the conditions for a struggle about how this surplus will be shared. Okay, so now the person is producing more in their day than they can possibly use themselves for their bare subsistence. Right, okay, like, okay. So agriculture is clearly the factor that Mandel and Marx are thinking about in this. Okay, so with the advent of agriculture, what they're saying is, you can plough a field with wheat and so on, it grows up. No, no, this is a new level of t technological productivity. You can produce more wheat in a day's work, you know, averaged out over the whole year, than you can possibly eat yourself. So there's a surplus, right? What are we going to do with all this extra wheat? And so this can lead to a struggle. Some people try to work less, you know, because work's a burden, you know, like, and they work less and they take wheat other people have produced, right? So a section of society, this is number C, right? A section of society can become a ruling class which is released from the necessity to work to produce their own subsistence. C, 
So this is the origin of class societies. Once agriculture has been established, a surplus can be produced. There's a struggle to gain control of this surplus and the ruling class is whichever group in whichever particular historical situations managed to do that. And once they've done that, they don't have to work. The surplus product comes to them being produced by other people and they're appropriating that surplus product. And of course, how do they manage to pull off this trick? They pull off this trick by gaining control of land or forests or whatever the means of production are. Basically, I mean, whatever way you look at it, the ruling class employs a class of armed retainers, you know, like an, an army, and the rest of the population is comparatively unarmed and unable to resist, and they are forced to produce a, a surplus. And in a sense, I mean, I, I totally buy this, that, that, that even capitalist society operates like this. Like you, as a consumer, a, a working class in an affluent first world country or a middle class person in any country of the world, you know, you don't actually own the means of production. You know, at the end of the day, you've got to get some means of getting income in order to live. Right. So like the basic means of production to produce houses and to produce, you know, heating in winter and to produce food, that's the most important thing, are owned by the capitalist class, you know, like, you know, the 1% or whatever. Okay, so that's still true in a capitalist society today. You are still, your arm is twisted. There, there is leverage placed on you to do work for the capitalist ruling class, just like in any other class society. Okay, now I'm going to go for Marx's optimistic conclusion. So this, this is only like a throwaway couple of lines in the German ideology. I don't know if he says it anywhere else, but it's certainly important and it certainly follows from the theory of class I've just explained. A communist society becomes possible again in the future. All right, so we've got primitive communism in the past, right? Well, because it's not in the past when Europeans were going around the world, there were still many examples of it. But anyway... It becomes possible again in the future. Why? This is the stage when production is sufficiently advanced to produce abundance. In other words, with modern capitalism, society becomes much more productive with manufacturing and machine manufacture and so on. And consequently, what we have is not just a small surplus like bags of wheat or whatever. We have a vast surplus which is being produced. This abundance means that it doesn't matter how mad your desires are and so on, there's actually no point in fighting over the surplus. You might as well share it. I mean, the energy expended in fighting to control all of this surplus becomes counterproductive, right? So, so even members of the ruling class, you know, you might think they're, they're doing extremely well, but really, you know, like, well, I won't talk about everything that's going wrong for them at the moment, but in any event, what they're getting out of using their extra wealth is minimal compared with, with what's possible for the vast bulk of society, given this abundance, if it was evenly shared and people cooperated to create abundance. So that's Marx's optimistic communist vision. So my next podcast on this topic is going to be a, a sort of deconstruction of Marx's theory of class to explain how various elements of the theory of class depend upon ideas about human nature that are kind of assumed but often not openly stated and certainly by later Marxists. Marx himself has quite a lot to say about human nature in his early writings but not so much in his later writings. 
But what I'm going to suggest is that the whole theory of class depends on various assumptions being made about human nature. So that's for the next podcast.